to talk about compassion. Because I think it's very important that when we practice meditation, of course, when we're on retreat in silence, you know, it seems to be just for ourselves. But I think it's very much to see that we are cultivating so that actually wisdom and compassion really can develop and then we can apply them and manifest them in our daily life. And I think what is interesting is sometimes we sit in meditation on a retreat and I remember many years ago I was sitting in meditation and suddenly I had the feeling my heart opened and the way I could express it is that I had no problem with nobody whatsoever. There was not one person. I went, no, 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 no. It was just, I love the whole world. And I think time to time we can experience that. And you know, it's so kind of like nurturing to experience that, that openness, that compassion for the whole world. And so first I'd like to look a little at symbols of awakening. Like in, uh, in Korea, for example, when uh, you go to a temple, you generally offer things. You offer incense, you offer candle, you lit candle, you offer water. And why you do this is because they are symbols of awakening. And then if we look at what they symbolize, it's very interesting. If you take the candle, for example, you have a candle and you lit it. And actually what it expresses, two things. One is selflessness, because as it lights the room, for example, it disappears. So it consumes itself as it's spreading light. So this idea of kind of disappearing as we have compassion for the world. But also with the idea that it's, it's, it's light, it's bright. And actually if you look at a candle, it's doing two things. And, and what is nice is that you can do it in English, it works very well, is that at one level it is illuminating. And so it's illuminating for everybody who is around the candle. And at the same time, the candle is illuminated. So itself is bright. And I think this is very important, this fun, kind of the practice it's not just about, you know, a self-illumination, but it's also actually that we spread a light around us. There is this kind of compassionate, compassionate space that we kind of develop. So it's not just for ourselves, but also very much for the world, for others. Then you have the incense. And again, it is the same idea with the incense, is that as the incense after you let it spread its fragrance, it disappears. So again, this idea of selflessness, that as it gives to others, it disappears itself. But there is another aspect of the incense, and it's that it's pervasive. When you have an incense which is lit, and there is a, the, the fragrance, the incense does not say, hmm, I don't like them over there. I'm not going there. I'm going to go that way. It goes everywhere without distinction. So again, it's a, it's a compassion which is really, as uh, Caroline mentioned, open to the whole world and not just to certain people. Then you have water. 
And what is interesting, because again, it has two qualities, and one is of reflection. That water will reflect whatever comes above it. It will just, if there is a moon, it reflects the moon. If it's my face, it reflects my face. Whatever, it will just reflect it. But it will not grasp at it. It will not keep the image that it is reflecting. And also it won't choose. Oh, I don't like that one. I am not going to reflect it. Oh, I like that one. I reflect it even better. No, no, it just reflects as it is. And when the person on the moon passes, then nothing remains. So again, that idea of kind of not grasping. And then there is also a notion with water of adaptability. That in a way, water adapts itself to any receptors. A ball, something flat, something kind of rectangle, square, round. It just adapts itself. So in the same way, if we cultivate meditation, we become more flexible, we become more fluid, we become more creative. More kind of, I would say, creatively engaged within the condition that we encounter instead of fighting them, instead of trying to, like the water saying, I am going to be square in a square ball. I want to be round, which would be a little difficult. Then I want to, to look at the aspect of meditation, which I think is very important, is the inquiry, the vipassana aspect of meditation. And to see that at one level it would seem to say, what has this got to do with compassion? Because it's about kind of noticing impermanence, it's about noticing uh, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, it's about noticing non-self, emptiness, and you think, but this sounds a little kind of dire, you know? Kind of not fun as a program, as a program of learning. Woo! What has this got to do with compassion? And I think it's very important to me, this actually is a key to compassion, is actually experientially really knowing those characteristics of existence as Buddha talked about them. He's not, he's not saying just, you know, everything is impermanent to annoy you. But he's saying, look, to me this is, there is two aspects to impermanence. One aspect of impermanence is ultimate change, death. And what is interesting, often what stops us from com being compassionate is actually not seeing the preciousness of life. Our teacher often would say, look, your life rests upon a single breath. Everybody's life rests upon a single breath. But do we live as our life rests upon a single breath? Not. We think, oh, well, at least still my retirement. At least, you know, I have, a I mean, as long as I'm not dead, it's other people who die. So I'm still here. And I think, in a way, we can take life for granted, we can take people for granted. And I remember when I saw my father die. And then I really understood impermanence. Because up to that point, I thought, ah, oh, something breaks, who cares? It's not mine and it's impermanent. I don't mind, you know? And it was, you can use impermanence in that way. I don't care. 
But actually, when I really saw the last breath that my father, just it went, then I understood impermanence. And at that moment, arose this compassion, this compassion for the preciousness of life, my own life, anybody's life. And I looked at people in such a different way. I could look beyond the image of them to really that person who is breathing in this moment and could stop breathing at any moment. Then there is another aspect of impermanence that often we don't consider. Is that impermanence is saying things change. And the problem is often we live as if things don't change. And actually through that, we really fix ourselves. We really fix others. I already did talk, talk about it a little. When you say to yourself or you say to somebody else, I am always stupid. You are always stupid. It's like saying, you know, every second, every minute, every day, every week, every year. I mean, what a prospect. It's kind of like, I mean, you're freezing yourself. You're freezing others. And in a way, to see, to me, this is kind of like the gift of change. The compassionate aspect of impermanence. That people can change. It might take time. They might not change straight away. I might not change straight away. You might not stand straight away. But there is a possibility for change. I had this kind of interesting experience with my nephew. Many years ago, uh, when he was just finished his university, he was really in a bad shape, could not find work, and it really was not very good. And so he came to stay with uh, my mother and grandma, and I kind of came to help a little out. And I just did not know what to do with him. He was kind of really kind of uh, unhappy. And I thought the only thing I can give him is, you know, I just a few instructions about meditation, the breath, you know, who knows, could be useful. So I just told him, you know, one day, he seemed kind of receptive that day, so I told him how to just do meditation on the breath. And never again we ever talked about this. And then 15 years passed. <laughs> and then he was talking to me. One day we had one of these uh, reunion, family reunion. He said, you know, a year ago, I had such a difficult time in Paris. And then I remembered the breast meditation. And I just did it. And it was so helpful. And I thought, you never know. You see, we think they will always be like this. But it's not true. In each of us, there is a creative potential for change. And to me, this is in a way the gift of impermanence. We can give to ourselves. And also we can give to others. Then there is a second characteristic, which is dukkha, which is translated as unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, or suffering. It has many different meanings. But here what interests me is the meaning of suffering. The Buddha is not saying everything is suffering. The Buddha is saying suffering happens. There is suffering in life. It happens. And what do we do with it? How can we relate with it? And to me, often, we kind of push. I mean, suffering, we push suffering away. We don't want it. We, I mean, 
you know. But it's when I was really suffering, it's when I was ill myself, that finally I understood. Yeah, I understood suffering. And out of that arose compassion. Because my first, what was interesting when I had never been ill before, but I became ill in Korea. And my first reaction was, why me? Why me? And I thought, wait a minute. When you say, why me? You say, why not somebody else? <laughs> not, not very compassionate. And then I thought, but wait a minute. This is a suffering the Buddha is talking about. And that's when I realized two things about suffering. It is painful, but secondly, it is isolating. When we have a headache, nobody can experience our headache for us. When you have a pain somewhere, that it be mental, emotional, physical, nobody can experience it for us. And so actually, to, to know that, I think if we really know experientially, suffering is painful, suffering is isolating, then we cannot but have compassion for ourselves, have compassion for others. And then we have the third aspect, the third characteristic, which is that one is a big, there is lots of problem of looking at it, of understanding it, this, the no-self. This is a big thing, you know, no-self. And often there is this idea that, you know, one day we all disappear. It's kind of like there is this kind of, you know, nothingness somewhere, emptiness, and we're kind of all going to disappear in a puff of smoke. And I can guarantee you, you won't become puff of smoke on your cushion. You're generally there. You might experience yourself differently. I think this is what happens sometimes in meditation, when we generally feel so kind of fixed, so solid, so my body, there is this border. And often sometimes in meditation, you sit and suddenly you feel, wait a minute. I feel like I am not there. But it's not that you're not there. You're not experiencing yourself in the same way. There is this feeling of like, so there is no border. I'm not so fixed. I'm not so solid. It's kind of more porous. And it's not that you disappear. You're not kind of, you know, liquefying on your cushion. <laughs> but is that you experience yourself differently. You're not holding on in that way. And so in a way, this idea of uh, no self, of emptiness, is not that we don't exist, but it's saying that actually we exist in a different way than you think. We don't exist separate, independently, isolated, but that actually we are a flow of inner and outer conditions coming together. And then if we look at this, if we look at this conditionality, to me this is something interesting to to reflect upon. We sit in meditation. We watch the breath. We experience our life in this moment. And then ask yourself, what is my life depending upon? My life in this moment. My life is depending upon the food I eat, the water I drink, the air I breathe, the clothes I wear, the house I live in, and all this, I don't make myself. All these come from the outer condition to actually enable the survival of this condition. And then that's what to me, we realize we are not isolated. 
we are so connected with the whole world, which in a way allow me to exist. And through that, then we can have connection, we can have compassion for that world, that life that we all share together. So I see very much this kind of looking deeply into the experience, in a way kind of enabling us to kind of nearly have this revelation of compassion, but not as I am compassionate because I am a good Buddhist, but because I am compassionate out, out of that experiential understanding of change, of suffering, of connection. And so in a way, I would see meditation as through the process of degrasping creative engagement, actually opening our heart. And so in a way, I would see meditation as removing the obstacle to our compassion. So it's not that kind of meditation is not going to produce compassion. But I think meditation is, a, is going to help us to remove what, in a way, kind of, I would say, fix, kind of limit, kind of, kind of stops us, kind of stops us from opening, from being creative within our heart. And so I would say, yes, we have a natural, innate ability to respond to suffering. I think this is kind of a natural ability. Even, even the chimpanzee has that ability. I was reading this book about apes, and there was this wonderful story about this, uh, one day there was this fellow kind of uh, observe all these uh, apes, and uh, there was a little bird who suddenly had, had kind of hit himself on something and fallen inside the enclosure where you had all the chimpanzee. And a little uh, a, a female chimpanzee noticed the little bird, and so kind of she went to protect it, and then she kind of touched it a little bit. And then she kind of took it to a tree to kind of, <laughs> kind of try to help him to fly. But it's interesting, you know, even a female chimpanzee has that innate ability to kind of want to help some being who was suffering. And I think we have, we have the same. I mean, now I live in this little village. And it's very interesting to live in a little village because it's a, it's a very kind of like... A, kind of certain atmosphere of kind of caring for each other, even if not everybody knows each other so kind of well. But kind of there is connection. And one day I was at the way at the beginning I was living there, I noticed I am on the first floor and I noticed everybody was going to the neighbor house. You know, there was kind of like, you know, my mother would go, then the neighbors and other people would go. And I thought, what's going on? And it lasted three days. So what's going on here? So I asked my mother, what's happening? She said, oh, you know, the old lady, she went to the hospital, she had cancer, now she's better. She comes out of the kind of the hospital and, you know, she's on her own. So everybody is coming together. You know, we would take turns to bring food, to cook, to be there for her. And they were not getting anything out of it. It was just somebody needed help. And so kind of people, they were not specially religious or anything. But it was kind of that, wanting to help that suffering, responding to that suffering, and kind of having that compassionate action. And to me, this is also shown when, even if somebody has difficulty, you know, somebody you have difficulty with, you were working with this today with the 
loving-kindness meditation, when they become ill, generally often you forget about the difficulty you had with them. And then you really kind of, you know, try to be there for them. Because again, I think there is this natural innate ability to respond to suffering. But in a way, it's not enough to respond to suffering. We also, in a way, need to be available to that suffering. Because, you know, when you are with the person who suffers, we might feel that movement of the heart. But then when we're not with them, do we still think of them or going to visit them in the hospital or not? So it's kind of like, it's not just kind of having the feeling of compassion. I think it's also having that availability to the suffering of others. And so I see very much kind of that in compassion, there need to be this recognition of equality in life and in suffering. That it's not that you're going to help somebody out, but it's more you're responding to that suffering in the world to which you are connected in some way. And so I would say, in a way that... Um, Compassion, it's again, with compassion, there is both the same thing as with meditation, cultivation and effect. I would say, if you cultivate meditation, one of the, of the effect often is that there is more compassion. But at the same time, you can cultivate compassion and you can feel more compassionate. So I think it's very important that sometimes there is this idea that compassion is always having the feeling to be compassionate, always doing something. I think it's also cultivating the conditions so I'm more likely to feel compassionate. I think this is quite important to see. And to look a little at, in a way, what are the obstacles to compassion? This is interesting to look. What are the obstacles to compassion in my life? What is it that stops me from being compassionate? And actually I would say one main thing is busyness. You know, you are busy and you get like a tunnel vision. I am busy. I have this to do. I have that to do. I have that to do. Oh, you have a little... Oh, I'm sorry. Not, maybe in three days' time, but not now. Not now. I have the... And to really see how when we get into what I call this gasping, busy, one tunnel mind, compassion goes out of the window. Even if we are the most compassionate person in the world. It's very interesting. And so in a way to be careful of that. Another thing, it's fear. Fear just closes down. Fear, you, you can't see anything else. You, you're just kind of so, in a way, into survival mode. You can't see anybody. No, 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 I'm too afraid. It kind of really closes you down. So in a way to look, you know, for each of us, what is it that kind of, you know, stops me from being compassionate? And so I would say that um, the two go together. I would say wisdom and compassion goes together. And I would say meditation is really the path to kind of help us to cultivate more wisdom and compassion. And that in a way we kind of cultivate it and then there is again that effect of it. And to see also that the meditation is not a way apart from the world. That we kind of, in a way, here are apart from the world, but in a way to cultivate in such a way that when we go back into the world, there will be more 
easily that creative movement of compassion of the heart. But what is interesting in Buddhism, and that's what I kind of encountered a little in, uh, in Korea, was that there they seem to be these two different ideas, often with compassion and the Buddhist path. One is you can only have real, I mean, that I got. I was doing my research for Buddhism and women, and I was asking this nun who had been meditating for years, and she was one of the great nuns and really lots of meditation. And so I said, you know, to ask her, I said, what do you think about, you know, compassion? She said, compassion? Forget it. <laughs> Until you're awakened, no point. <laughs> okay, okay. And that's one view. I mean, you know, her view was really quite elevated, you know, until you really awaken and you really then will have, you know, like awakened compassion. That's one way to look at it. But then I met another nun, and I thought she was lovely. And she was actually taking care of a nursing home for all women who had no family and for all nuns who had no disciple. And I said to her, what, why are you doing this? She said, well, you know, I became a nun to practice meditation, to awaken, and then to save everybody. And then as I was practicing meditation, I thought, if they have to wait for me to be awakened, they might have to wait a long time. <laughs> so wouldn't it be a better idea to practice compassion, acti compassionate activity and meditation at the same time? And in a way, it's really what she, she created, this lovely home for this kind of lady. It's kind of really kind of very nice feeling there. But in a way, we have to also be careful that it's also very important to look at the aspect of wisdom and compassion. Because yes, we have the feeling of compassion, but I think we can also have very easily what I would call misguided compassion. And it's very interesting to look when we are compassionate, to kind of look, is, there, is it really this kind of open-ended, really kind of giving wise compassion, or is it one type is what I would call self-interested compassion. I am compassionate to you, but because I expect you to be compassionate in return, so that I am giving this little thing, but then I'm expecting a big thing in return. <laughs> And my, uh, my teacher was, had a lovely expression. He said, when you give something, you give it just like if you were giving a dirty mop. If you gave, gave somebody a dirty broom, you would not think, wow, you know, he's really going to give me something great in return. If you said, thank you for taking it, in a way. And he said, the same way, when we give, when we have compassion, it's really open-ended, really without kind of thinking of ourselves first. But sometimes, you know, because to be compassionate feels good. And so generally we kind of, I remember, because in, uh, in Korea, you cannot eat by yourself. This is, it's a very communal uh, kind of uh, way of life. Just in general, their culture is very communal. We all do things together. You don't say, my father. If you have brothers and sisters, you say, our father, it's not just yours, it's everybody's. So they're very communal, so you cannot eat just by yourself, this is very selfish. And so I was very hungry, and I was in a town, and I had, you know, bought some nuts, and I wanted to eat them, but I could not eat them by myself, I had to be compassionate. 
uh, and share them with somebody. So I'm kind of looking for a likely candidate to <laughs> my compassion. And I found this lovely candidate, which was this little boy, kind of three, four years old. I thought that. So I said to the mother, can I give him some nuts? And she said, she could not. I was a nun, so she could not say no. So <laughs> he the nuts. And within two minutes, he had them all over the place. It was horrible. And I saw so clearly, you know, I was doing it for myself. I was not doing it for him whatsoever. And so to really kind of look when there is this compassionate movement to kind of, you know, is it a wise compassionate movement? Or is it little interested compassionate movement? <laughs> Otherwise you can have the what I call ideological compassion. And that's kind of relatively dangerous. And it's kind of like, you know, you know what's good for people. Because it's good for you, it's going to be good for them. So you know, and this is so kind of can be so dangerous in a way. And to me, it became so clear one time, long ago. A friend had difficulty, so I said, "What can I do for you? How can I be you know, compassionate in your situation?" She said, "You know, go and visit my mother with a nursing home. Then you know she'll have more company." And I said, "Sure." And I thought, great, you know, I thought, ah, oh, I can talk about impermanence and I can talk about death. Oh, great. <laughs> Let's go. So off I go to see this lady with great theological, ideological idea about compassionate activities. And I get there, and I get there, and she sees this monster flies, and she's very frightened. And so, uh, what my compassionate activity thereafter was to distract her. The opposite of meditation was actually to distract her from the fear so that she would not be suddenly focused on this imaginary thing that were not there. And so I had to learn. I had to learn what she liked. So she liked uh, cricket. She liked... uh, talk about roses, and she liked talking about making jam. So then, you know, I would be with her, and then I would see her going funny. I would say, what about that cricket match? And she said, oh, yes, 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 yes. And it was what was required. And to me, in a way, this is what we have with compassion. Wise compassion is a compassion which really listens. What is required? What is needed? And can I give it? Because we might not be able to give it. This is a kind of important thing. Because we have this movement. We want to give. If somebody asks us, we want to be compassionate. But can we really give it? And when I was first to learn in Korea, I was only French, Buddhist, Zen nun in Korea. So I was kind of, a, I became a little kind of a minor celebrity. So I would appear in a newspaper or magazine and things like this. And whenever I appeared in newspaper or magazine, I would get letters. And it was very strange. I would have these young people asking me for money. I don't know why. (laughs) The thing, I was a nun. I had very little money. So I said, yes, I can send you $5, but that's all I have. You know, I don't have anything else. And I could feel that, I mean, I wanted to do something for them. And I could not do anything for them because I could not give them what, what they wanted, what they needed. I did not have it to give it. So in a way to see, you know, that sometimes we cannot necessarily give it. Also, 
we have uh, kind of another type of uh, expecting compassion is that actually I am compassionate, but it's going to work. You're going to change. You know, because I mean, if you ch don't change, what's the point? You know, I mean, I, I want to be compassionate, but only if there is a change. This is very much nowadays, you know, this is the idea, you know. I am compassionate, but it must be work, it must be efficient, it must be kind of, a, kind of you know. Uh, and this is uh, to, to be careful, because sometimes people might not change, or it might take such a long time to change. I mean, I had this friend, she would come to me with all her difficulty, and being slightly organizational and compassionate, I would suggest all kinds of things, which she never did. <laughs> and she really was not interested in until it really kind of I realized the only thing she wants me to do is to love her, to be there for her, to see her, and that's all she wants. She actually doesn't want me to resolve her problem. She just wants me to listen, to be there, to care for her. And once I started to do this, ah, it was so much easier. I just had to be there, to be kind, and that's all I had to do. I didn't need to do anything else. So in a way, to, to, to see that sometimes, yes, we might be able to change the situation, but all the time, we can actually just, the compassionate thing is actually to not do anything but be there with the person where they are at. Which I think sometimes it can be very difficult for us to do that, to just be there. And I think meditation can really help there to cultivate that type of attitude. Then there is what I would call discriminating compassion. Oh, we like nice little bunnies. We want to be compassionate to children as long as they don't kind of become a little too messy. You know, and we're compassionate to our friend because, you know, they're generally nice and friendly and, you know, it's okay. But <laughs> difficult people, oh, no, 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 no. Too difficult. You know, and I remember this lady saying to me, oh, it's so, so difficult. You know, I have my sister in Germany and she's so unhappy and... I phone her and I talk to her and it's so distressing. Oh, I'm not sure I want to talk to her on the phone again. And I said to her, but how often do you talk to her on the phone? Once a, once a week? For half an hour? I mean, she's suffering all the time. You only get it for half an hour. And so in a way, it's to see that in a way, when people are difficult, I'm not saying we should be with them all the time. But if we are with them just like 30 minutes a week, they are with themselves all the time. We only have to be there 30 minutes. And in a way, we don't have to grasp at it. We can be there just for their suffering. We can be there for them. It might not be easy. But when we leave them, and this is what is difficult sometimes, is to just leave it. When we're there, we're really there but then we have to leave it. And this is where the equanimity comes in that Caroline was talking about this morning, cultivating equanimity, cultivating this creative engagement. So when we're there for the person, we're really there. But when we leave the person, we don't take it with us. We just leave it there and 
in we go into the next thing. I think it's very important to see that. Because sometimes we can feel, in a way, overwhelmed by the suffering of the world. But at the same time, we can't resolve the suffering of the world. We can only do the little bit that we can do. And so in a way, to see kind of how we can work with that kind of feeling of compassion, because in a way, compassion, I would say, is not necessarily easy. It can make us feel very sad. It can, it can make us experience suffering. To be with suffering is not necessarily easy. The people are suffering. It's painful. It's not easy. I remember we often go to South Africa and we kind of try to help out and give some donation there and in whatever way we can, helping orphans and things like that. And then one day, somebody thought we could maybe go and visit a family with the idea that if we saw them, we would do something for them. So we said, okay, let's go. And it was one of the most destitute heart I have ever seen there. There was just this old lady looking so depressed. There was these two kids full of scabies. There was no cooking pots. It was just, I mean, really dismal. And I sat there and I thought, and I was feeling, in a way, what I was real experiencing in that moment was the distressing, the suffering of that lady, and at the same time, the realization that I can help this family, we can help this family. But there is so many families like this in the world. The father dead, the mother kind of a little, kind of running away and everything like this. And so... Of course, we help them, and then it kind of really improved their life. But what was interesting for me was that for about a week, I felt quite sad. But I was not overwhelmed by the sadness. It was just kind of, yes, when you encounter this kind of suffering, you cannot but be sad. But at the same time, we need to cultivate the equanimity so that we can be with this kind of suffering, and we don't grasp at it. We just kind of be with it. We kind of, in a way, honor it. We kind of know it. And then, of course, then it kind of generally, as we could help them, then it receded. But in a way, to see that, in a way, when we are cultivating compassion, we also have to help ourselves. To see that there is limit to our compassion. And so, again, with what the Buddha was very clear is that, in a way, there is a spectrum of being compassionate for others being compassionate for ourselves, and then in the middle. That is not kind of, you know, I am always compassionate in the same way. Is that we move according to condition. Sometimes we can be heroic and really help somebody, and sometimes you can just take care of yourself. I remember when I was very ill with my uh, pain. We get these bouts of pain, and because generally I'm kind of nice and kind, that everybody wanted to be compassionate to me. So I was, you know, kind of on the bed waiting for it to go. And then people would go, oh, what can I do for you? Do you want to talk and everything? And I just wanted, you know, I just wait for it to pass. I can't, you know. I... And it was interesting because I could not be compassionate to them trying to be compassionate to me. Because <laughs> I just had enough energy to, you know, just be there. It was interesting to see that, to see, you know, you kind of move in a, you know, there is kind of a whole spectrum. There is not just one type of compassion. And so in a, re, in a way, really, 
cultivating that stability, that openness, to really kind of cultivate compassion with also the other quality like equanimity, like loving kindness, like rejoicing. So then there is kind of like more of a balance, more of an equilibrium. And, so, and also so to see what I would call to me what is important is not that we, every, everybody goes out and you know, have to be compassionate if you want to be a good Buddhist, but more in what small ways can I be creatively, wisely compassionate to myself, to others, to the world, in my small way. So, because often with compassion, there is this heroic ideal. But just, you know, can I be kind to my neighbor? Can I just, you know, kind of be aware of what's going on? So really, this creative way compassion, which each of us find one's own way to do it. And there is this wonderful uh, story in Thailand, uh, where uh, you had this monk, and he became a monk. He was forced to become a monk because he was a terrible young man who kept getting kind of a young lady pregnant in his village. And every time this happened, you know, his family had to give um, a buffalo to the family. So they were getting poorer and poorer. And so they kind of decided to get kind of, you know, he becomes a monk, you know, and then to resolve the problem. So off they send him to the monastery. And then, lo and behold, he became a really good monk. Really good monk, really ethical, really, really a good monk. And then he decided to go back to the village. First I said, well, that one, you know, he really... No, no, as I saw, he was really good. And he came back to his village after many years, and he saw, what can I do? for the village. I mean, I can teach them meditation, I can teach them ethics, but he saw that they were very poor, much poorer than they used to be. And he saw, what is the problem here? And he realizes because they had, at that time, no way to convey their produce to the market town. There are no kind of way to do that. And so he thought, what they need is a little mini truck. A little mini truck, very cheap, that is easily made. And he went to learn how to do that. So he went to go little engineering school, whatever. And then he started to build the prototype of the little truck in his backyard temple. And all those monks thought, wait a minute, monks are not supposed to build trucks, you know, for villages. You know, what's going on here? You know? But he really saw that's what was needed. And so then he created, there was this whole, I mean, he changed the life of the villager. And he could make them more prosperous. And then he could start to talk more about ethics, meditation, and all that. Once they kind of really could have, you know, their bare minimum taken care of. And to me, this is what I would call creative wise compassion. To kind of really find in one's own way, how can I be compassionate? What it would mean for me to be creatively wisely compassionate in my life. So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions, comments? This is your last chance. <laughs> <laughs> or any other, any other thing you want to ask or talk about? Not to gain something um, materially, but to help yourself feel better. 
Well, again, I think it's nearly unavoidable because generally when you are compassionate, it feels good. But what one has to be very careful is to, in a way, grasp at it, to kind of only feel good if I have that feeling. And often this is, in a way, when one has to be careful with the idea I mentioned at the beginning of selflessness. You know, if I am selfless, then really, you know, I feel good. But it might not necessarily be always good to be selfless. But it's kind of if, if I identify with it, if I kind of reduce my identity to that, then yes, you kind of, you know, you start to do things just to feel good. And the way you feel good is by being compassionate. And then that's where it's very important. Is it wise? You know, I might feel good, but it's me, like me and the nuts and the boy. I felt good, but it did not not the mother. So it's kind of like looking very much at what is it I feel, but also what are the results of the compassion? Is it really helpful or not? And so it's kind of, to me, it's back to kind of like not, that's why I think for me compassion is a quality that often you can feel good because you help somebody. Poor, 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 dear. But I think to me it's more I should be grateful for the person who allowed me to be compassionate because they helped me to open my heart to them. And so actually I should be kind of more grateful to them. So it's kind of in a way to, to be careful in different ways. I totally agree with you, kind of because it could be kind of nearly in order to feel that good feeling, you always have to be in compassionate mode. And then sometimes you might not be acting wisely. I think if you act wisely, why not? I mean, you know, it is, I think, a very... Uh, it's not that we should not feel good about being compassionate. But it's more, am I grasping at it? Am I kind of, you know, kind of uh, fixing myself and not considering others, the other person feeling or whatever? So it's kind of more looking at that. Because I think the feeling will be naturally there. But then it's more, what do we do with the feeling and what is the effect of my action? Yes? I really struggle with loving-kindness meditation. And I think your Caroline might have said something like, um, if you meditate in other ways, the Dharma will do its work and loving-kindness will arise. Do you think that's an easy way out? Or is it really important to spend a lot of time struggling with it. No, because you see, it's like anything. It's really very important to see in terms of tools of awareness. Some people love the breath. Some people can't do the breath. Some people uh, love the listening. Some people can't do the listening. Some people love the what is this. Some people think, why, why should I do this? Some people love the loving kindness. Some people really don't like it. You know, it's just, it's like any method. Personally, I think any method works for 60% of the people. And there is 40% who generally it doesn't work. So personally, I would not. If you try the meta and it really doesn't speak to you, I would not, I would not worry about it. I would not do it. I would do something else and I would say, yes, that something else will help you to be compassionate. It's just kind of, one has to see the meditation tool in diff- as kind of like, I would see them more as method, as techniques, and as tools. 
So with certain tools, you know, you, you have no, it, it does not respond, it doesn't work. So I would not worry about it. I mean, my husband is really not keen <laughs> on loving kindness meditation. <laughs> you know, I teach it. They know it's me who teach it. Because he is really kind of, he, he, for some reason, it does not work for him. You know, some people actually find it very mechanical. And some people just love it. I think it's very important to accept our difference. And that's why, I br- that's very much one of the reasons I bring this different method because I have seen over time that they're not necessarily suited to everybody. But I believe everybody can cultivate concentration and inquiry with different methods. And generally, the effect will be to release, to degrasp, and generally there will be the rising of wisdom and compassion. So one can do it what I would call maybe what looks like a more direct way, and then one can do it in a more, what I would call, indirect way. Because in, in some school, you, you don't do that. I mean, in the same way that in the, ter- in the Vipassana tradition, in a way, you never ask, what is this? This is kind of the Zen people do this in Korea. <laughs> you know, other people think, this is weird practice. And then the people who do the loving kindness, Korean, they do loving, they don't do loving kindness. What's their problem? But they do it in other way. You see, you can practice compassion in another way in your life. And in your meditation, you do something else which will lead a little to the same result. So one has to see not to feel that any method is sacred. That I think is very important. Is a tool, is a method, is a skillful mean. And it's for us to try them out. That's why we said it's suggestion. You try it out. If it suits you, you do it. If not, you do something that suits you better. Yes? How do you create... Oh, how... How... How do you show compassion for someone... Ah, that's different. Yeah, no, this is a good question. Because uh, I was giving a talk a little similar to that once on compassion. And then somebody came to me really, really kind of, you know, distressed. She said, oh, I'm really kind of wondering, you know, was I really, really enough compassionate to my husband whom I left recently? I said, what are the conditions? She said, well... I was with him for 10 years and he was a drug addict and I left him finally because the dealer came and he was very threatening and I was really kind of, kind of, you know, frightened. I said, you know, you were compassionate for 10 years. To him now you can, you know, change. You can be more compassionate to yourself. So I think this is where the wise compassion comes in, you know. And I mean, I was working with... Um, uh, when I was living in England, I was a trustee of an um, association charity for uh, battered women. I mean, it's obvious. You know, if somebody aggress you, I mean, you can have compassion, but from very far away, very far away, at a great distance, you know. Because if somebody is beating you and you say, no, no, I love you, no, I, no, no, no. If somebody is beating you, you get out. You know, if there is any aggression one kind of try to kind of either 
I mean, it depends. If it's really, really violent, I mean, one leaves immediately, immediately. It doesn't show compassion, it doesn't show love. One gets out. One has to have compassion for oneself. This is, there's a premium. Then, of course, there is more kind of what I would call less obvious situation where you have difficulty with somebody and then it's kind of like, are they intentionally making me suffer? I mean, if their intention seems to intentionally making you suffer, then again, I would say, be careful, you know, try to not meet that person so often if you can, or try to kind of do something about it. If there is suffering, but it's not intentionally, and it could be kind of the way people are relating, then possibly one could try for a little while creatively engaging with the situation. If it doesn't change, no way, again. I think one has to have, in a way, what the Buddha said was very clear. The Buddha said, we need to have as much compassion for ourselves as for others. It's equal. So it's not just compassion for others, it's compassion for both. And within that you have wise compassion. What is skillful here? What is appropriate here? And sometimes, the most compassionate thing for yourself and for the other person is for you to make space. It's for you to, in a way, to, to, to go away for a bit. And then you can possibly meet the person again, see, is there still problematic? If it's, I really saw that clearly. I mean, it really went again, in a way, slightly again, my, my ethics, what did happen. But it was very, for me, kind of like, oh, when my, um, I mean, I don't advocate this, but this is something that happened, and I, it made me think. My uh, brother-in-law, who had a long, long-term girlfriend, and we don't, did not think he was very nice to her. So. And finally, he seemed to be better with her. And finally, they split up, and he went with another woman. And then he was so much better with that other woman. He was so much nicer. He was just a different person. And of course, the first one really suffered. And he could, one could think, oh, he would have been more compassionate if had been, he stayed with her. But the, the way they were relating was really painful for both of them. And so, to me, this is sometimes, I think, compassion and ethics is a challenge. Is a challenge, it's kind of, you think, but what is the compassionate things to do here? What is the ethical things to do here? And it's not necessarily clear-cut. It's not necessarily, it's kind of like, you think, should I go this way? Would I be more compassionate to myself or compassionate to the other person? And in a way, I think we have to be humble and we have to kind of learn to, Try things out, but always with wisdom, always the middle way, always to be careful, in a way to protect. Compassion is also protecting ourselves and also protecting others, I think. But sometimes it's, things can be very complex and it's not easy to see clearly, you know. But no, that was a good point. Okay, maybe now we can to walk in meditation. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.